Well, our sermon text, maybe if you were looking at the bulletin or if you got the email with the uh, order of worship, you might have looked at it and said, didn't we just do those verses last week? We, we did, but we didn't. I focused mainly on the earlier verses in that passage, and I was going, I was all prepared to move on to the next uh, part of chapter 2, and I just found a feeling nagging at me saying, you didn't spend enough time talking about such a great text about one God and one mediator between God and man, so we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, the second half of what we looked at last week, and we're going to spend most of our time looking at that. Just for the sake of context, we'll read the first seven verses, uh, but we're going to focus on verses 5 through 7, and if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes this, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, last Sunday, if you were here or if you listened uh, afterward, we looked at the the whole passage of verses 1 through 7, but we focused mainly on what Paul says his, his exhortation to us about the importance of prayer in public worship on the Lord's Day. Well, this morning we're going to look mainly at verses 5 through 7 and what Paul says there in that part of our passage where he reminds us with good reason. He's not just you know filling, filling up things with words. He reminds us with good reason that there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You know, in some ways you could say that what Paul tells us in verses 5 through 7 is basic Christianity in a nutshell. It's, it's a very brief summary in some sense of what we believe is, as Christians. There's only one true and living God. That is a truth, as we're going to see, is found throughout the Scriptures from the Old and New Testaments. And there's only one mediator or go-between between God and sinful men. And because of that, that means what? It means there's only one way of salvation from sin. And that is through Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say these things in a vacuum. And very often these kinds of verses are quoted, you know, kind of out of context, which is okay per se. But it isn't like Paul just suddenly decided to talk about Christ being the mediator. These things were all said in the context of what he said about prayer. In, In some ways, this is the very basis for Paul's words to us about the importance a prayer when he says in verses 1 to 2 that you and I are to, as the church, are to pray for all men and for kings and for all who are the, in authority, uh, it's because God desires all men to be saved, all kinds of men, both Jews and Gentiles, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why we're to pray for all men, even in the services on the Lord's Day. But ultimately, it's precisely because of the fact that there is only one God. And the fact that there is only one mediator between God and men, and so only one way of salvation, that's why we must pray for all men. That's why we must pray for kings and all those who are in high positions of authority, because there is only one gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one way of salvation in Him. That's one of the reasons why we pray 
and are instructed to pray and make such a priority out of prayer in worship. And so the first thing we must grasp, I think, from these verses, and for many of, for many of you, maybe all of you, this will be a reminder, nothing that you haven't heard before, but it's a good thing for us to be reminded of, is the simple and profound truth that there is only one God. That sounds like a very elementary thing for us to say, and in some ways it is. It's the ABCs of the Christian faith, but there are many, maybe most in our, in our culture that don't believe this and don't acknowledge it. In fact, in verse 5, Paul writes, the ESC puts it this way, he says, For there is one God. The word for there points to what went before it, right? He says there is one God. Now, in the Greek text of this passage, it's even more terse than that. There's no word is there. There's no verb in verse 5. He literally says, you could translate it, it wouldn't read very well in English, but you could read it, for one God. And the word one is in the emphatic. It comes first, but we, we wouldn't write it that way in English. He literally says, one God. He's, he's making a point. It's one of the ways that you emphasize things uh, in, in New Testament Greek. He's saying there's one God. He says it emphatically. It's, it's his main point there. Now, that truth is found throughout the scriptures. It goes against the grain, though, of, of much of the increasingly secular culture and pluralistic spirit of our age. That there is only one true and living God is really taught in the first verse of the Bible. In some ways, it's the very first thing you come across, not in so many words, but what does it say in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, and then God made everything. He's the only one that has existed from all eternity. Only God himself is eternally existent. Only God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that he is. Only God is the maker of, of heaven and earth. The first line, we affirm that in the first line of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That is a statement of monotheism, of, of God being the only God that there is. Herman Bovink, the great Dutch theologian, over a century ago, wrote this. He says, From the very first moment, true religion distinguishes itself from all other religions by the fact that it construes the relation between God and the world, including man, as that between the Creator and His creature. The idea of an existence apart and independently from God occurs nowhere in Scripture. God is the sole, unique, and absolute cause of all that exists. There is a God, and we are not Him. That's, that's the first thing Scripture tells you, is there's a God, and you're not Him. And you owe your existence to Him. You owe all things to Him, whether you serve Him and believe in Him or not. Everyone that ever takes a breath of air in this world owes that breath and their very life and being to God. That there's only one true and living God was part of the confession of the faith of the people of Israel. You might know, maybe you've heard this phrase before, the Shema, that's the Hebrew word for hear, was taken from the first part of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, uh, in verses 4 and 5 there. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Notice these truths aren't just thrown out there again. They're not just thrown out in the vacuum. What, is, what, is he, what are they told? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and what do you do because of that? What's the takeaway or application of that monotheism, a belief in one true and living God? Well, it's the only natural thing. You shall then what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
and implicitly not love and not serve the false gods of the nations. That is that. That is half the point. Over and over again in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah's prophecy, God tells his people through Isaiah repeatedly, time and time and time again, that there's only one God, that he is the only true and living God, and the gods of the nations are false gods and figments of people's imaginations. Isaiah 42.80 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. And, and the word Lord there is Yahweh. It means I am. He's the only one, right? I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 43, next chapter, verses 10 to 11. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Here it is. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. He's the only God, and there's no saving outside of him. But wait, there's more. Isaiah 44, verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Sounds like part of Revelation, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Isaiah 45, next chapter, 45, 5, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It's almost as if he's trying to make a point. Isaiah 45, 21 to 22, he says it again. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And then what does he say? Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He says to everyone, same thing that Paul says in our text. There's only one God, and the ends of the earth, if they're going to be saved, have to turn to him through faith in Christ. Not only that, but the New Testament teaches this same thing in many ways. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says uh, to the people he's writing to, he says, You believe that God is one. Where does he get that from? Deuteronomy 6. You believe that God is one. You do well. He's saying, I think it's a little bit of sarcasm there. He's saying, Good job. Glad you got that one straight. You, you do well. Then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Just acknowledging mentally that there's one God is equivalent, maybe even less than demonic faith. Are demons saved? No. Do they know there's one true and living God? Yes, they do. Do demons know that all the, all the gods of the world are false gods who cannot save and don't even exist? They know that better than anybody else. They know it better than we do. They even shudder. How many people believe there's one God who claim to believe in the God of the Bible and yet live as if he isn't there? Live as if he's not going to judge one day. Don't even have the good sense that demons have to shudder to stand before a holy God on their own outside of Christ. So I asked this morning, do you know and believe what the Bible teaches from cover to cover that there's only one true and living God? That there is no other God than Him, and besides Him there is no Savior. That is the Bible's testimony from cover to cover. Well, the second thing, and just as important as the first that Paul tells us in our text, it's not just that there's only one God, but there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Here again, he uses the word one. It's emphatic again. He's saying one God, and he's saying one mediator. He doesn't use the word only. He doesn't have to. It's what he is getting at by what he says, there's only one mediator between God 
and man. Now that might be a, a, a big $10 theological word. Maybe you've never heard that word before. What is a mediator? We use that word in our legal system sometimes as well. We talk about mediation. A mediator at its most basic is a go-between. Somebody who goes between two parties. John Stott writes this. A mediator is an intermediary, the person in the middle who affects a reconciliation between two rival parties. He's the one that, that makes things right between, between two parties. The Lord Jesus is the mediator. He is the one who reconciles men to God. The larger catechism, question 36, uh, talks about this very thing. It says, uh, question 36, who is the mediator between, uh, excuse me, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? It's another way of saying who's the mediator of the gospel. Since the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. Christ is the only mediator between God and men. There is no other, and part of the reason for that is there's no one like him. There's no one else like Jesus Christ who was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. There's no one like him who's able, because of who he is, to bridge that gap. He's truly God, and yet he is truly man since his incarnation. And so he is able to identify with us, and he is certainly able to identify with God, because he is God the Son in the flesh. This is one of the many reasons why there can be only one mediator, is Christ's person fits him uniquely for that work, that he is both truly God and truly man forever, and so he's perfectly able to represent man to God and to represent God in his grace to man. Now you might have read this passage, or maybe you heard as I was reading it, and you, you, heard, it, you heard Paul say, the man Christ Jesus. And maybe you thought to yourself, why does he call him a man? Is he not affirming that Jesus is the divine, eternal Son of God? No, he's not saying that at all. He's not denying or downplaying Christ's divinity at all. What he's doing is emphasizing that Jesus Christ himself is the one who unites us to God. One commentator notes that this is kind of like the Lord Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. Son of Man was a messianic title. Son of Man, oddly enough to our ears, actually emphasized his divinity. It comes from the book of Daniel, that one like the Son of Man that was in the fiery furnace that rescued Shadrach, Meshach, uh, and Abednego. It's a a messianic title, much like the Son of Man, but he's, he's emphasizing the fact that he can sympathize with us, that he was made man. He's not saying that he's no longer the Son of God. He is God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Now, Christ alone also can only be the one mediator between God and men, not just because of his person and who he is, but also because of his work on our behalf as our mediator for our salvation. That's why in verse 6, what does Paul say? He doesn't just say that Christ is the mediator. He goes on to say that he's the mediator who what? Gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He's talking about Christ's death for our sins on the cross. Christ's sacrificial death, his atoning death on the cross on our behalf, is the only reason, it's the main reason he can reconcile sinners to God. Without his death, there is no reconciliation. Without the shedding of blood, what did we just read in Hebrews? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death is the thing. His death is what paid for our sins and reconciles us to God, Romans 5.10. 
Because of that, that Romans 5.11 says, Paul says, because of that we can also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How has God reconciled us to himself? Through the death, Paul says, of his son. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could do this. No one else's death could reconcile a sinner to God, much less a multitude of sinners to God. And why is that? Only one who is truly man could die in the place of sinful man, taking the wrath of God for our sin in our place. And only one who is truly God could endure the wrath of God in its fullness and have his death be of infinite value and merit to save an innumerable number of sinners. Remember Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 talks about a, a great multitude that no man could number from every tribe, nation, tongue, place, and people praising God and saying salvation belongs to the Lord. You're not going to be able, you're literally not going to be able to count. God knows. He knows the number. We can't count. We're going to get to heaven someday when Christ returns and we're all there. We're going to be shocked by the grace of God. We are going to be amazed how many people God saved through Jesus Christ and his death for our reconciliation. Article 26 of the Belgic Confession, an old Reformed confession, says the following of Christ as our mediator. It says, For there is no creature either in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ, who, though existing in the form of God, yet emptied himself, being made in the likeness of men and of a servant for us, and in all things was made like unto his brethren. If then we should seek for another mediator who would be favorably inclined towards us, whom could we find who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us? You know, people are always looking for another mediator, and the Belgian Confession reminds us in, in a great way, who could possibly love you more than Jesus Christ who laid down his life to save you? And it says, even while we were his enemies, Christ laid down his life for us while we were still his enemies. And if we seek for one who has power and majesty, who is there that has so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of God and to whom hath been given all authority in heaven and on earth? And who will sooner be heard than the own well-beloved Son of God? I know that was a long paragraph, but that, that article from the Confession gives us three great reasons why Christ is our mediator and why we should have confidence in him alone as that mediator. The very first of those three reasons is the love of Christ. Who could possibly be said to love us more than Jesus Christ, who did what? He emptied himself, was made in our likeness, and even laid down his life for us while we were still his enemies. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no one, no one loves you more than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your mediator and your high priest before God the Father. And if no one loves you more than the Lord Jesus Christ, why would you ever dream of seeking any other mediator? You know, the, the Roman Catholic Church, they're always seeking other mediators and putting mediators between Christ and his people, whether it be the saints, the Virgin Mary, or whoever else. What a comfort it is to know that, that our mediator is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, as the Bible tells us over and over again. The second reason given in that article is the power and majesty of Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only does Christ love us more than anyone else could possibly do, but even now, where is he? We just talked about it a few Sundays ago. He is ascended and seated at the, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, having all power and authority. If you're looking for the most powerful go-between you could have, 
There's none like him. No one has the power and majesty that Christ possesses at God's right hand. Who could possibly be better able to help you in your time of need than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, whoever lives to intercede for us according to the will of God at God's right hand, so that we are saved to the uttermost. The third and the final reason given there is the love of God the Father for his Son. Not just that Christ loves us, and not just that God loves us, but that God the Father loves his Son. Whose prayers for you and I will be sooner heard and answered by God the Father than those of Jesus Christ on our behalf? His own well-beloved Son. All of Christ's prayers are answered by the Father in the affirmative. No saint, no Mary, no anyone else could possibly have their prayers sooner heard and answered for us than the Lord Jesus Christ. What could be better than that? He is the only mediator between God and men. And that brings us to our final point this morning is not just that there's only one God, not just that there's only one mediator between God and men, but because of those things, there's only one way of salvation for sinners. In a sense, that's Paul's main point in this whole discussion. The whole paragraph points forward to that. There's one way of salvation, and so we have to pray for all men to come to know Jesus Christ. Is this not what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, 6? We read it, I think it was last week. He says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am what? The way and the truth and the life. And then in case we missed the point, what does he add? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself is the way and the truth and the life. He is not one way among many. He's not one way among many. He's not one truth among many. You know, these days people talk silly talk. They talk a lot about your truth and my truth. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. There's truth and there's error. There's truth and there's falsehood. And people don't like it, but it's just the way it is. And Jesus is the truth, not someone's truth, one among many. And he's also not one life among many. People often say, well, your way is fine if that works for you. My way is fine if that works for me. That's, that's great when it comes to earthly things, but it's not true when it comes to salvation uh, through Jesus Christ. He is the life, not just one among many. What does John says in 1 John 5, verses 11 to 12? 1 John 5, 11 to 12, John writes, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And here it is. Whoever has the Son has life. If he'd stopped there, many wouldn't be offended. But what does he say after that? Whoever does not have the Son of God does what? Does not have life. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't, you don't. That is what the Scripture says. The unbelieving world you might know, maybe your unbelieving friends and, and others, they will sometimes tolerate the first half of that verse. They will sometimes tolerate it, that whoever has the Son has life. But they cannot bear the flip side of that gospel coin, that whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. They cannot bear it, they cannot and will not often tolerate it. The gospel itself, you might have figured out more and more these days, the gospel itself is offensive to many. You would think something that's literally the good news would not be found to be offensive. But why is it offensive to so many? Because it speaks of the truth of God's just judgment, of the sinfulness of mankind, of the need of the Savior. No one wants to hear that. 
Nobody wants to be told they're sinful and there's going to be a judgment after they die and they need a mediator to stand between them and to take their place on the cross. Everybody wants to think that they're just fine on their own. But it's not just the gospel that's offensive, it's really the exclusivity of the gospel that's the most offensive of all. Even to a great number of Christians, professing Christians find this doctrine, this truth from the scriptures to be offensive. But all roads do not lead to heaven. All roads do not lead to heaven. We must faithfully bear witness to that truth in God's word. What does Jesus say in Matthew seven thirteen to 14 in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who came and, and died in our place for our salvation, says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is what? Easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter into uh, enter by it are what? Many, many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now he's not saying there's only going to be a handful of people in heaven. He's drawing a contrast. He's not contradicting Rome, uh, Revelation seven, where it says there's going to be an innumerable multitude in heaven. What he's saying is in this life. This is how it's going to look. It's going to seem like the church is this big, that Christians by, by, by number and comparison are this few compared to the world, those who are rushing headlong into destruction. But what does he say? Many enter the wide gate and the easy way that leads to destruction. Many. Once again, the Bible does not teach universalism. It doesn't teach that everyone goes to heaven. It certainly doesn't say that everybody was going to be saved. Many go to the way of destruction. All you have to do to be on the road that leads to destruction is nothing. You don't have to do a thing. If you, if you, if you do nothing, you're already on the easy road and the wide path. Go with the crowd, take the easy path, go with the flow, do nothing, and you're on the path to destruction if you don't turn to Christ by repentance and faith. And so I have to ask, ask this morning, which gate are you entering by and which road are you on? John ten nine. there Jesus says, I am the door or the gate. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Are you in Jesus Christ by faith? Is he your mediator to reconcile you to God through his death on the cross? Because there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, only one gave himself as a ransom in due time to save us and reconcile us to God. Our text tells us there's only one God, there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and because of that, there's only one way of salvation through faith in Christ. That's the whole reason why Paul tells us in the earlier verses of our passage to pray for all people and for kings and all who are in high positions. He tells us to pray because God, what, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All kinds of people. And that's why we must get the gospel out to all people. We have to pray and we have to get the gospel out to all people. That means here in Ramona, that means foreign missions, it means church planning, all those things we should be actively supporting. Paul brings this very thing up in verse 7 at the end of our text, doesn't he? What does he say there? For this, for what? For the gospel getting up. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why does Paul bring that up? 
Timothy certainly knew about it. Why does Paul bring up the fact that he was an apostle to the Gentiles? Because that's what he's talking about when he says God desires all men to be saved. It's not The gospel was never just to be for the Jews. It was to be for the Gentiles as well. That's the rest of humanity in a sense. He's saying the gospel is to go out to everyone, to the ends of the earth, that all men, all kinds of men might be saved. Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Even Gentiles, which would have been a shock to many uh, before the first century. Many, many of the Jews would have been shocked to hear that, and yet Paul says just that, and the whole scriptures testify to that very thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of it, that there's only one way of salvation through faith in Christ, is all the more reason for evangelism and missions. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, Paul writes, Romans 10, 14 to 15, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's why we are to pray for all men. That's why we need to get the gospel out. And we know from Revelation, many will hear and believe to the glory of God through Jesus Christ alone. Amen.